Well, can we bow our heads for a moment and pray together? Uh, Lord God, this is a passage that summons us to make every effort. We pray that that would begin by attending to your word this evening. Hold up Jesus before us, we pray. That we may know who he is, know who he is for us in our lives, and may be the, be the more determined and the better able to serve him as Lord in, uh, in that scattered church that we heard about from Emma. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do please make sure you have uh, that reading in front of you, page 1211. Uh, Hebrews, uh, that's where we are in a series at the moment. Uh, now, uh, pity me. Um, I had less sleep last night than I would like to have done. Students. My wife and I sleep with our window open, and uh, uh, I can trace the student year by the noise coming off Trinity Street. I think it must be Freshers' Week. Um, from, I don't know, I suppose about 11 o'clock through to midnight, um, there was a great deal of movement up and down Trinity Street. I can never quite work out what this strange desire is when you're off your head. To, to wander up and down a street for no particularly good reason, shouting, <laughs> but that's why I've had a little less sleep than I might have done. Uh, but lest we rush to judgment, uh, uh, let's also pity the poor student who has made his or her way here this evening, the poor Christian student. Perhaps... In their first year, you can picture the tender scene, the mother's fond and tearful farewell, the father's gruff, you will remember to phone your mother, won't you? And looking to feel at home in this new place, they decide to try the, this church on their first Sunday evening, and all they get from Hebrews is a stern, wagging finger. See to it that... It's a phrase that comes three times in this reading, in this stern passage, and this is indeed a very stern passage. I, not everyone will have been with us. Uh, we're coming towards the end, in fact, of this series, and we'll start a new one soon. So it's worth just giving a little background to this letter. There's a community of Christians who have some kind of Jewish background, and they're under pressure from those who are basically saying, Jesus, ha, you want to get back to proper worship, mate, with proper sacrifices, in a proper temple, with a proper high priest, and a proper covenant with God. They are under pressure. Not uh, so bad yet that blood has been spilt, but bad enough that in chapter 12 and verse 4, the writers worth, felt it worth making the point that no blood has yet been spilled. So what's the result of this pressure? Well, they're losing confidence in their salvation. They're losing love for one another. They're losing uh, joy and sliding back towards permanent despondency. And yet much of that pressure 
has just been described as a disciplining testing ground in which God is pushing to discover who among them is the real deal. Look at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? And now we come to verses 14 to 17, first of all, where they are warned about where they need to put their effort. And it would seem that these verses cover just about every base. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Do you remember Jesus quoting the uh, two great commandments when he was asked? First, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus thought those two commandments covered everything. And those are the, these are the, the two areas covered in precisely this verse. First of all, live in peace. It's the second commandment. Live in peace with one another. Live in peace uh, with all men. It's not just a kind of, ah, oh, peace not a sweet kind of peace. It is the peace that demands every kind of effort. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he didn't really expect us to be working up tremendous feelings of lovingfulness to our neighbor. Rather, I suspect he meant deal with the conflicts that represent 90% of human engagement. Love means a determination to reconcile those conflicts and address that with serious urgency. Make every effort to live in peace. And that puts a priority, of course, on life in the community of God's people. Whatever else is going on here, it's partly about the responsibility we owe to one another to look after one another's spiritual health. That's the second commandment. And then he says, be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Uh, That's the first commandment. Hold on passionately to the gift of Christ that has made you holy. Set you apart for God's use. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. In that verse, the writer is covering uh, everything kind of horizontally, the relationships that you have with others but also vertically the relationship you have with God, covering the bases. Then verse 15, avoid carelessness and stubbornness. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, he says. Don't miss out on grace just by idleness or indifference. Can't be bothered. Some of you, uh, perhaps... Uh, first years, perhaps, back uh, after a, a summer break. Some of you will probably have a parent on the phone tonight or tomorrow morning. Did you get to church? Yes, Mum. But some won't have got to church. They can't be bothered. Their head hurts after a night on Trinity Street keeping me awake. It's just the little indifference the setting of a course half a degree different from home. 
But a few months later, it's apparent that a major turn has been undertaken. Can't be bothered. Indifferent. Careless. Heedless. But then also, there is that deliberate stubbornness. If we can be indifferent to the grace of God from above meeting us, we can also be deliberately stubborn and exclude ourselves from God's grace. The language is actually from Deuteronomy, this language of a bitter root growing up to cause trouble and defile many. The heart turns bitter, turns to other gods, and then can take others with it. Don't. Don't let a bitter root grow up and cause trouble and defile many. So we've had the horizontal, we've had the vertical. Don't be careless, don't be stubborn. Covering the bases. And then verse 16. Um, the, there's, uh, it's one of those times where a, lot, a comma matters a lot. It's not see that no one is sexually immoral, comma, or is godless like Esau. It's actually see that no one like Esau is sexually immoral or godless. Both of these things apply to Esau in the original language, the the Greek. The problem is that we don't think of Esau as being sexually immoral. Uh, So I guess in terms of just understanding it, it made sense to put the comma where we've got it in our Bibles. But uh, he was uh, legendary, and I mean that in that strict sense. It wasn't found in the text, but it became a legend as to how he behaved. And this is, again, a covering of the bases. Imagine, you have just got your own room at uni and your new laptop that Granny gave you. You can watch as much porn as you like and no one can stop you. You can read all 150 shades of grey. And here comes Hebrews saying, don't. Esau's story is worth reviewing. The covenant of God, his promise to make and bless a great people for himself, had come to Isaac from Abraham. Esau was Isaac's oldest, older child, son. And he could expect to inherit this great promise of God's blessing. Jacob, the younger son, would have other lesser promises. But Esau gave up his inheritance. He handed it over to Jacob one day, also that he could enjoy a meal that Jacob had prepared. Later, when he was satisfied and wanted to change his mind, it was too late. And he was used in uh, Jewish legend ever after as an example of someone who, for the sake of a momentary physical urge... A hunger gave up a splendid inheritance. And because that was the principle, you can see how that would translate over to the sense of him being sexually immoral. He wasn't in control of his appetites. And there was a terrible penalty. Later on, the blessing of the father Isaac went to the younger son, Jacob. Esau could get no part of the blessing that by then he'd wanted back, even though we're told here he was in tears about it. <clears throat> it was simply too late. The judgment had been made in favor of Jacob. Now you might read verse 17. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. 
Now, maybe you find that verse chilling. Surely, there was space and time for Esau to repent. Can't we always repent? Yes, and perhaps Esau did repent, for all we know. But that's not the point. The point is the blessing could only go one way or the other. And would it by then have been right for Isaac to take the blessing now away from Jacob in order to give it to a repentant Esau, who himself had given it away earlier? It wouldn't have been. And all of that so far, from 14 through to 17, is one long sentence in the original. And it all follows those first words, make every effort. It is urgent, this. It is a serious business. Look after the horizontal, look after the vertical. Beware carelessness, beware stubbornness. Beware the example of Esau. Uh, In all the appetites that you face, beware of setting any one of them to the point where you throw away the good things that God has given. We're going to say more in summary of all that later on. But let's go on to the next section in which we get these two mountains. The first is Sinai, the mountain of Moses where the people gathered in the desert, the mountain you could touch. It's described in terrifying language. There are visual Images, fire, darkness, gloom. But the odd thing is that these are visual visual terms that obscure rather than reveal. And there is uh, audible language, storm, trumpet blast, and the voice speaking words. Notice it doesn't say the words. There's no actual communication happens. It is the voice that's focused on in the verse. And those sounds, the storm, the trumpet, and the voice, those sounds deafen rather than enlighten. That's how it was. But then, uh, uh, or perhaps as, uh, not then, uh, just as a result, it was a, a, a terrifying prospect. It was accompanied by a curse. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses, friend of God, said, I am trembling with fear. That's how it was. But then in verse 22, we get another mountain, a different one, one you cannot touch. This is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. There's a myriad of angels gathered in joyful assembly, The hint there of common worship that when we gather, uh, there are unseen friends present. There is the church of the firstborn. It was, again, a, a term in the Old Testament for the gathering of the people of God. There is God, the judge of all, the one who is trustworthy for his capacity to judge, make right judgments. There are the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've got God, you've got the angels, you've got those who've gone before us. Everyone's together. And at the center there's Jesus himself, the mediator. When we gather, we gather with him. 
And finally, there is the sprinkled blood of Jesus, that is, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood was known from the Old Testament in that first murder where Cain slays his brother Abel. And it was known or imagined that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground itself for vengeance. That's the cry of Abel's blood. But this blood speaks a better word than vengeance. It speaks reconciliation. And the motivation then for all this making effort in verse 14 and onwards is is don't do it the fearful way. Uh, from the, the, the Mount uh, Sinai, but do it fundamentally because of the joy of being part of this community around Mount Zion. What's fundamental is that the way it's expressed at the beginning of 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You see, you could touch Mount Sinai, but you cannot touch this Mount Zion. You can see Mount Sinai, but you cannot see Mount Zion. And so much of this letter has been around encouraging people not to go back to the, what, what their friends may say was a proper worship, with proper sacrifices, in a proper temple, with a proper high priest that you can see and touch, but to trust to a once and for all action on the part of someone you couldn't now see but where you had faith that you were actually gathering with all the angels and the spirits of just people made perfect. You can't see it, but you can see yourselves. And that's where verse 25 picks up. The word is literally what it's translated as, see to it that... You can't see Mount Zion, but you can see to it that you yourselves are what I suppose we would say these days are sorted. See that you do not turn away from this gift. The warnings from fear were dreadful. They did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. And the warnings from joy are in a sense even more scary. How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven whom we cannot see but in whom we trust? It's followed by a quotation from a prophet, the prophet Haggai prophesying how things will be at the end of time. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The people, of course, knew of earthquake and fire and storm and and all the normal things that shake the earth. And Haggai was saying there will come a time at the end of all things when it will not only be the earth that shakes, but the heavens too. I will shake the heavens. And the words, verse 27, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken. There is a time ahead when God is going to do this. Once more, that is. Uh, Indicate the removing of what can be shaken, created things, earth, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Meaning, 
Uh, even, uh, when, or rather, when heaven and earth together are shaken, the only thing that is going to stay in place is not the created things, but the stuff of heaven. And at that point, if that's what remains, then we will see Mount Zion and the angels and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. We will see the church of the firstborn. And for the first time, we will see who it is we have been with all along but didn't know it. All that is going on, in other words, for this church, for Hebrews, is going on because of God's shaking and sifting. He is sorting out who will be his. And if it all seems a bit grim, let's remember that at the end, the tone is about gratitude and worship. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, what's left, in other words, when God has shaken everything else to pieces? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The worship there, as so often in Scripture, it's not about us singing, though it would be quite good to have singing that was acceptable to God with reverence and awe. It's part of our worship, but it's not the whole of it. In the context of Hebrews, this is about lives that are lived. You see, you can't see God, but you can see yourselves. You can see your worship. You can see to it that your worship in the life of the community uh, is offered with reverence and awe. And that doesn't mean a kind of split personality that means you live kind of normally out there, but that when you come into uh, church, into the gathered people of God, you put on a kind of Poe face. This is my reverent and awesome face. It's exactly what Emma was talking about. It's about that sense that the whole of life not just Sunday, not just when we're gathered, but out there, Monday through to Saturday and beyond, is lived with reverence and awe. Whole lives devoted to God. So that God is welcomed to burn up with his consuming fire what displeases him. Because consuming fire is what he is. Well, is that, in total, as we move towards the end, the message that I would have chosen? No. I would much prefer if it had been gentle and suitable for beginners and nice, something that would have patted all of us on the head. But, of course, it would have ended up patronizing all of us. It is the time of year that it is, and I've spoken of students at the beginning of their career or of a new year. But the truth, of course, is that every moment is a new beginning. Tomorrow is a new beginning. Whatever it is that you're up to, tomorrow, it's a new beginning. You walk out that door, it's a new beginning. This passage urges us towards joy from above, from what is unseen. That is the first commandment type motivation. Go through Hebrews, if you wish, if this is all new to you, and learn of Jesus, of what he did, 
of what it means for him to be the mediator of a new covenant, of what it means for him to be raised as Son of God, of what it means for him to be addressed by God as Son, not just as one of the created angels or a created, uh, other created person. But we can't see him. We have that story, that narrative that tells us who he is. In the presence of that narrative, we are urged to joy from above, from what is unseen. But then there is also community watchfulness, the see to it thatness of this passage. From what is opened out to one another. That's the second commandment type motivation. I thank God for those here in this church who look after me practically and in prayer and in other ways, in accountability too. I thank God for the joy that comes from progress in the spiritual life that may be hidden from me but may be known to others. Motivations at the end of this passage. Uh, The first commandment type is the joy of that mountain and all that it stands for. The second commandment type is the community that looks after us in all its different ways. Don't think, and this is the seriousness of make every effort, do not think that you can get by without either the realities of that mountain or the community to care for you and be safe. You cannot. That's why we must make every effort to face verses 14 to 17. We are those who have to make sure that no one else, no one among us is causing a bitter root or missing the grace of God. We are the ones who uh, look after one another to make sure that no one is being godless or immoral. We are the ones who care about one another's holiness. Now, you will know, as I will not, you will know where the shoe pinches for you. Is it holiness? Is it a sense of independence where you don't care what anyone else thinks in the wrong way? Is it that you don't actually make much effort to live in peace with others? You will know where the shoe pinches for you. Sort it out. Make every effort. If you're a student, you've joined uh, a UEA, the, the UEA. You have uh, Christian Union and its action groups to help you. I'm encouraged in the life of the church to know that very small, more very small groups are arising in which practical help can be given. And I commend that model to you. We can talk about that a little more if you want to come and talk to me or to any of the staff afterwards. But the point is those first three words that I want to hammer home for you tonight. Make every effort. Let's pray. And just spend a moment in quiet. Uh, Personally, I always find that the, 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 um, the, the slouch that we adopt in prayer very rarely helps. Uh, when spending time in quiet, Um, but I'll leave it up to you to sort that out. Um, And just think, where have you slacked off on effort? It's not me saying that. I am not wagging a finger in your face. 
but God is telling you, make every effort. So where have you slacked off on effort? Where have you started to believe that it will all come and you don't need to bother about it, it's all just magic, it all just happens, and ignored the fact that God in his word says, make every effort. Lord God, you know our hearts. Our hearts and our minds, our souls and strength are open to you. You know the things that we're willing to talk about and the things we're not willing to talk about. We pray that you would fill our minds with uh, a faith in what Jesus has done, in the reality of that Mount Zion, celebrating what he has done. Fill our minds with the truth of it, so as to fill our hearts with the joy of it. And make us those willing to enter into good, healthy, fruitful relationships with one another, so that without, uh, again, wagging any fingers, out of deep love for Jesus and his people, we might see one another brought to holiness of life and a joyful worship with reverence and awe. Amen.